welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where we hear about the lives and stories behind scientific discoveries. This episode, I'm joined by a research scientist from the University of Auckland. She's an expert on all things weevils, weaponry, and really good science. <laughs> it's Dr. Chrissy Painting. Chrissy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, James. <laughs> I was trying to think of something with another W, but I can start. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> love it. I thought I would just open by asking the most important question. What's your favorite weevil pun? Oh, that's a goodie. Well, I think it would probably be the axis of weevil. <laughs> that's a good one. And yeah. I particularly like a picture that I saw, I think it was in Western Australia somewhere in a museum where it had a... A little weevil on a bicycle, like Weevil Knievel, and he was That's jumping over. Good. Yeah, it was a good one. <laughs> yeah. Also, we got seen a weevil, hearing a weevil. Never ending. Please tell me there's a paper on weevil phylogeny that's like <laughs> talking about ancestors and it's the root of all weevils. <laughs> I don't think there is, but <laughs> we can make this happen. Absolutely. There should be. <laughs> yeah, I've kind of stopped using these weevil puns in my um, talks, and I think Mariella was one of the first people who told me this. Is um, it's just not okay. <laughs> Avoided at all costs. So you did your PhD on the world's is it the world's longest weevil? It is, is that right? Yeah, well, yep, that's is right. This a like a Guinness World Records claim that you can make. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if it's official, but yeah, they're, they're up there. They're definitely the longest weevil. I guess they're not the heaviest, but they're, they're for sure the longest in terms of body length. Okay, so what, is it special that they're long? Yes, it is. Um, okay, so males are particularly long in the New Zealand giraffe weevil, and um, they are made up, more than half of their body length is actually made up of their snout, which is essentially an elongation of their head that they use as a weapon. Oh. Yeah, so they, um, when they see another male on the tree, um, they'll come along and try and fight with the other male that's there, and they use their, they, we actually call it a rostrum, which is sort of the technical term of this elongated head. It looks head. like they've got a big long nose. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we, my favorite term is the schnozzer. <laughs> um, very technical. <laughs> um, and yeah, they kind of, they have their mandibles or their mouth parts right at the very end of their big long nose yeah. and they um, use that to kind of bite and try and pull off the other male and when the fights get really escalated they actually will sort of match themselves next to each other sort of like a knight on a jousting pole so they have these long things sticking out the front of them which is their their rostrum and they'll fight side by side to try and sort of flick the other male off the tree. Okay, so did we know they did this before you started researching it, or is this um, Yeah, there were anecdotal kind of accounts of um, fighting in giraffe yeah. weevils, and also um, there was one natural history paper from the 1970s which sort of wrote up some of the nice um, behaviour that he saw, um, this one researcher from New Zealand. Um, but otherwise, yeah, nothing sort of scientific had really been done apart mm. from this one paper. So the question I really want to ask... <laughs> You weren't tempted to publish a paper called Why the Long Face? Ah. <laughs> that's true. This is a good thing I don't work on weevils. Yeah, apparently so. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Right. Missed opportunities. But there's still maybe, time. Yeah, there's still time. Okay. Absolutely. You can credit me for that. <laughs> I will. I'll get an acknowledgement. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and so the longer rostrum you have the better quality male you are essentially 
Yeah, so um, so one of the questions that I was interested in um, for my research was to look at what the benefits of having a really long rostrum are, but also to try and understand why there's so much size variability among males. So it's not, I guess, that uncommon for insects and other animals to have these big protrusions that are used as weapons, but it, it's interesting when it's also coupled with a lot of size variation. So we see males that are up to sort of nine centimetres long, but also males that are as tiny as about 1.2 centimetres long. So yeah. it's like a six-fold difference in size. So, so these little um, males just hopeless then? Or do they? No, they're not, well, that's what that was the original thought, but um, actually they use a totally different behaviour to try and um, mate with females. So they can fight and they will use their rostrum as a weapon if they find other similar-sized males mm-hmm. on the tree. But if they are up against a much larger male, which is um, quite a lot of the time, then they'll sort of... Rather than try and go detected and try and fight with the other male, they'll actually slip in sort of next to the male as he sort of stands over a female and they sneak, um, sneakily mate with the, with the female. Whoa. Yeah, under the nose <laughs> of the other male. <laughs> nice work. <Done. laughs> and the other male just doesn't fight them off? Yeah, so sometimes they the other male tr- notices something's going on, like it, it can feel that there's something between him and the, and the female um, but um, they the, these little ones are so tiny and what they do when they start to when they start to mate with the female and, and if they do get detected and the other male starts to try and pull them off using those, those big jaws at the end of their rostrum they the little male will tuck himself around the side of the female so mm. that there's nothing really for the other male to grab onto and so they usually the bigger male usually ends up giving up and just i don't know if their eyesight's particularly poor so they can't really resolve what's going on in front of them so they just end up giving up and standing over the female and continue to guard so the little male actually ends up getting protected as well by this big male while while he mates (laughs) while the males are sort of doing all this crazy stuff over the top of the female she is drilling little holes into the trees so she her main business is to make to lay her eggs so she she'll find spots on a tree where she she thinks that it's a good spot for her babies and she'll use her rostrum which is again her the elongated part of her head but it's got quite a different structure to the males in that her mouth parts are sharpened like a little drill piece at the end of mm-hmm. her rostrum and it's really straight and long and narrow and she drills her, her rostrum into the tree and makes a tiny little hole that she'll then eventually turn around and oviposit or lay her egg into the hole. When you think of animal weapons, you don't really think of using their face as a weapon. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, they're quite interesting in that regard. So I guess a lot of other insects anyway, that when we talk about weapons, we often think of horns on dung beetles or, I don't know, long protruding eye stalks on, on stock-eyed flies. Um, yeah, there's so many examples, and I guess that's what makes weaponry, to me, so interesting, is that there are so many different types and so many different species that have different forms and shapes of weapons, even among really closely related groups of species. Mm-hmm. We see so much difference. So the New Zealand giraffe weevil is just one species of a much larger family of weevils um, found worldwide, mostly in the tropics. Among those species, we have some that have really long rostrum, like the New Zealand species, but also others that have really big, wide, sort of booty heads that have these massive jaws that I also considered weapons and that males have only have them, females don't, and they do use them to fight. But 
there's probably lots of different things about their ecology that they use these mm. weapons differently and we still really don't know much about this family but um, yeah something that I think is really interesting to try and understand why weapons differ among groups of closely related species yeah. because you're not just looking at weaponry and weevils no that's true what else are you looking at um, so my current research project is actually um, one that's funded through the Marsden Society uh, sorry the Marsden Fund in New Zealand mm-hmm. Um, and that one's working on trying to understand weapon diversity in harvestmen, which um, their sort of scientific name is the Opiliones. Um, mm-hmm. Some people call them little daddy longlegs. Um, so they're a group of arachnids that are not spiders, but they are in the same sort of group as spiders. Uh, and in New Zealand, we have quite a few different species of these long-legged harvestmen, of which males have these massive jaws, what we call them chelicerae, mm-hmm. um, that, again, are only expressed in males, and we don't see the same sort of enormity in females. Um, and the work we've done so far on just one species shows that males do use them as a weapon, so they will fight with one another over females. But... Again, this group is incredibly diverse. So some species have really, really long, skinny jaws that just are huge things that protrude out the front of their head. Um, And others are much shorter but really, really enlarged in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So sort of wide, like big, I don't know, clubs almost. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so our project is is now looking at trying to understand why we see so much shape variation um, among different species of harvestmen in those New Zealand in that New Zealand group. So you're looking at how animals use weapons specifically to increase their reproductive output. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I guess when we talk about weapons, it, weapons could be all sorts of things. So um, the spines on a porcup- porcupine could equally be called mm. a weapon, but that's more about defence from predators rather than trying to increase the number of mates you have. So yeah, the types of weapons I'm interested in are those that um, only males have, so females tend to only have very small versions or none at all mm. and they're used by males to just fight with other males for mates females so how did you end up in this area were you interested in weapons or weevils or what drew you to a good question no like most things in my life i've kind of just somehow ended up there Fall into it. Um, it seems to be pretty common in science yeah <laughs> yeah I, I mean i guess i definitely always liked natural history and um yeah insects and plants and things when i was a kid but I actually went to university to, to be a horticulturist, so I was really interested right. in growing things. Um, <laughs> and then when I started my science degree, I, I took a few ecology courses and, yeah, slowly went down the entomology path. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't really until my PhD that I really got into animal behaviour, and that was just because my supervisor, um, Greg Howell, who I'd met at a conference, we were chatting, and he said, have you heard of these giraffe weevils? They're crazy. And I said, <laughs> I like have, great. but I have never seen them. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And, yeah, the rest of the history, I just, I, yeah, went down a big rabbit hole um, and spent the first few months just trying to find them and, um, yeah, just sitting out in the field and watching them and trying to see why they might be interesting. And, mm. yeah, it was pretty obvious quickly that they're weird and worth spending <laughs> three, three and a half years working on. Um, yeah, so I guess I definitely wouldn't consider myself a weevil expert in terms of other weevils, but um, yeah. but yeah, probably know a fair amount about the New Zealand giraffe weevil now. Well, it is a funny thing that we <laughs> don't really bat an eyelid at spending multiple years thinking about very specific That's topics, true. but to other people, it, yeah, I mean, it's no surprise we get sort of lumped in as boffins. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> yeah, it is funny, isn't it? I 
I don't know. I think it's funny when you talk to family and friends, and my grandma in particular, you know, every time we'd meet for dinner, she said, are you still working on that giraffe weevil? Like, you know, within <laughs> surely over three years, you've changed subjects by now and moved on to something more interesting. So it's, yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's just, the, you ask one question and kind of answer it and then another one crops up. So I feel like I could go on forever working on that one species if I really wanted to. So it's not really about the species there and it's, it's just about this desire for discovery and yeah yeah I think so because I I've worked on so many different things now and I I think I tend to be attracted to ones to species where we just don't really know anything and they're all species that I think look a little bit weird and we don't really know why (laughs) they look weird um yeah and that attracts my attention for sure and I keep telling myself that I should start working on projects that you know have a fair amount of base ecology known before Mm. but inevitably I end up back working on doing single species or mm. species that are unknown so I think that's just just going to be where I have to be happy with doing I think yeah. I mean there's sort of a trade-off with being one of the very few people working on a specific topic mm. and you're more likely to have a greater impact in that field but it's it's a lot of work starting from scratch yeah yeah I mean I guess you know you the same problems working on the orchid mantises is it is really worthwhile and that you get a huge sense of reward when you when you do learn something but I mean I spent that first six months in the field just okay so they're active during the day that's great you know and, okay they're found on these trees and, I mean that's not worth anything in terms of publications right you yeah. can't you know you're not going to get a nature paper out of figuring something out it's diurnal but um but I think it's nice in that you're probably more likely to notice things as well by just spending that time hmm. out there and, and seeing things. And you're not um, clouded by any kind of existing knowledge either. I yeah. guess you are a little bit in that you, you know, if you know the theory of the things you're sort of interested in. But no, I think with the, the jumping spiders that I was working on last year in Singapore, I, the second field trip when we went up to Malaysia and I was just, it was just me and Caleb up there, you know, mucking around and hmm. we didn't have anyone else to sort of I don't know, no one to rush off to see and do. And I think that's why we started to notice really interesting things with those species because, I don't know, you're just sitting there in the field and you've got nothing else to do and your mind is open and mm. it's, it's neat. It's really fun. I find that reassuring because, I don't know, when you're sitting in an office reading papers and analysing data, you do find yourself actually starting to think, we've discovered everything, surely. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, Absolutely. Which is really scary that you find yourself thinking that, it's nice that you can go out to the field That's right. and then all that gets blown out of the window. There's there's so much there. Yeah, it's true. You just true. need to look. Yeah, and I, I mean, I certainly, growing up, thought that scientists knew everything and I didn't really understand what being a scientist was because, yeah, I, I guess I never really thought about it either, but I just assumed that all the big things are being ticked off. And <laughs> I, I still don't think I think that broadly theoretically. I think... You know, I see something that's weird and then I want to answer the question, but yeah. and then I have to figure out the theory that would sort of apply to that scenario. But, um, yeah, that's probably not the best way to go about things, but I find it fun, so <laughs> I'm happy with it. So you did your PhD and you're now a postdoc at the University of Auckland. I feel like on the odd chance there's, there are non-scientists listening to this, mm. they might be interested in what the hell a PhD is and what the sort of career progression of a scientist is because it's kind of... It's true, yeah. It's not straightforward. 
so PhD, I guess, is just a really intense few years where you work on one system or one question or a few questions that sort of link together and try to answer them. Um, and then it's a you, university degree, but you're essentially a working scientist. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, I guess a lot of people think when you're doing a PhD that it's just another few years of study, but this is actually active research where you're setting out to actually answer questions by doing the experiments and the observations and the analysis yourself. So you're not just reading books for three years. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, when you finish, you get this doctorate, and then you sort of officially, I guess, an expert in, in a subject. Um, you get and to be then, called Dr. Grizzly Painting. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Still waiting for people to call me that on my flights, but anyway, <laughs> one day. Um, yeah, and then the idea after that, I guess, is entirely dependent on where you want to go with your science so or if you even want to stay in science but um so one pathway is to sort of stay in academia which means working at a university or a research institute and you can sort of the first step after a phd is to try and get this postdoc which is basically just a research position of usually a fixed term so one two three years Mm -hmm. um and, and you, again, go about essentially doing what you did for your PhD, so asking some questions, going out and answering them. Um, but this time, I guess, the idea is that you've got a bit more knowledge and experience behind mm. you, so you sort of don't have to hit your head against a brick wall quite as much. Yeah, and then pe- often people do several of those postdoc positions, so these sort of short-term research jobs, mm. until they ultimately try and get a permanent job, which may either be... A lecturer at a university and a lecturer is not just someone who gets up and only teaches they also have research as a big part of their mm-hmm. um, job as well so that would be sort of one way to do it or you could move into industry uh, where you might I don't know advise on biosecurity for a country or um, work in an insect collection or a museum or mm-hmm. something like that but yeah for me I would I think I see myself going towards the projection of staying in academia yeah. but I'm also very open to whatever comes my way which I think we all have to be in the climate it's very difficult do you feel like you have much choice in the matter or much say in where you go not really <laughs> <laughs> no um, no I feel like I've had a huge amount of luck come my way so far and um so I finished my PhD in two, mid 2013 um and I haven't really had any point more than a couple of months where I haven't had a job yeah. through that time. Which is it just because the jobs are so competitive or there's just not that many of them or just everything? Yeah, I think both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I certainly, yeah, probably am not as competitive as other people, but also I'm, yeah, I mean, New Zealand is a particularly tough place, I think, for postdocs. Um, we just don't have that many schemes and I have been very lucky to kind of get pretty much the only ones that are in New Zealand available mm. to me um, so far and that's not just from my own applications or anything that's just from collaborating with people that have got really good ideas mm. and it's for sure about working with really good people as well and then all those other little opportunities that I've had um, like doing this one year postdoc in Singapore last year was mm-hmm. yeah just by I think luck that that job came up at the right time when I mm. had a good number of um, sort of outputs from my PhD and yeah and off I went. I don't know if I was telling you this story but I have a, I have a small group of friends that are circus acrobats mm-hmm. and we can actually sit and talk about careers together because right. <laughs> we're actually kind of going through the same sort of thing. Yeah. I mean they have years of training mm-hmm. to develop a very 
specific skill set and you know, opportunities to get work are pretty small and pretty competitive. Mm. So they've just kind of got to go where the gigs are. And you know, if an act opens up in Singapore, well, they move to Singapore for a year. Right. When that finishes, they've got to go and do something else. I think the other interesting thing about it is that nobody's... It almost feels like sometimes nobody wants you, <laughs> but you've got to sell yourself yeah, to people. Yeah, true. And find your own yeah. work, in a way. Yeah, that's true. It's almost like you're kind of self-employed, in a way. I shouldn't say nobody wants you. People want you, but you've got to sell yourself to those people. They're not going to yeah, coach all that's the true. Yeah, it's not easy, that's for sure. And I think... I don't know if it's sort of the... Well, maybe, maybe this is not just applicable to academia if, if you're saying if, yeah your circus acrobat friends are finding the same thing but <laughs> I think having the confidence as well to kind of just stay with it and all the resilience I suppose matched with that is is so tough mm. and I think for a lot of us being not overly extroverted and kind of shy <laughs> people who don't really like to put ourselves out there is, is particularly tough because yeah you have to you have to be able to sell yourself mm. um I don't know I'm not I'm not hugely comfortable with the whole idea of having to move around a lot and and sort of just be able to feel like it's kind of totally natural just to up your entire life and move overseas mm. I don't think I think don't think enough weight is put on that of how much that is really unsettling to people yeah. um, well I guess you've done it once moving to Singapore yeah. for a year might be enough for now I think <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it was great but um you know it's yeah I mean I was married and my husband came with me and um that meant for him to have no job for that for the year we were there just because mm. the they don't have a great um they're not hiring foreigners very easily at the moment and so that was great fun in hindsight but at the time it was you know it was stressful not yeah. not having um well for him not having a job and feeling like he's sort of contributing to anything mm. and and just a very big shift in our dynamic because of a sudden, you know, he he was always at work and now he's always there. <laughs> That's great, but it was definitely it's different for me. us. <laughs> I mean, this is, I guess, something that I was also talking about with the circus acrobats is the effect it has on relationships because mm. you, know, you could be away from your family for a long time or what happens if you know, one person gets a gig in Sydney, the other one gets a gig in Las Vegas. Yeah. You know, how do you navigate that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for us, I think it came at a okay time in our lives in terms of where we were sort of financially and with kids and all that kind of stuff. But we did have to talk about it and compromise a lot. And I, I mean, I guess lots of people just do it apart for that period of time. But mm. we just knew that that wasn't for us. Um, and I guess we got we talked to a lot of people about it, and they sort of said, "Well, just treat it like a sabbatical, like." you know just for Caleb just come over and see what happens and we had these kind of not rules but idea that we'd check in every now and again and make sure we were both Mm. kind of okay Um, and so after a while when Caleb hadn't got a job we sort of talked about the idea maybe he should go home and go back to his previous position just so that he was earning money but then the whole idea of it being an adventure and being away then would be kind of redundant Mm. because I'd be on my own doing these things which I'd have a great time, but then, you know, he'd just be at home earning money and it'd be just kind of boring. So, yeah, yeah, so we ended up making the decision sort of halfway through the year when he hadn't found a job to just 
stick it out for at least a year and see what happens and just have fun so we just used it as an opportunity to travel and mm. yeah learn new skills he got into photography and <laughs> yeah and it was I mean, good it's fun. good that you know, there's that focus on dialogue because it uh, reaches a point where you almost have to be selfish yeah that, you know, one person really wants to do this thing mm. and you, you need that other person to be okay with it yeah I think I mean yeah I guess it totally depends on the on the couple and things but I mean, we, we're not hugely big. We don't sort of talk our lives through together all that much. But I guess he, Caleb just knew it was something that would be really good for me and that sort of long term I'd probably have higher earning potential and all those things, so it made sense to mm. kind of do it. And I guess the take a message is that science is tough. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a, you know, a straight line. It's a bit of a roller coaster. Yeah. What keeps you in it? It's a really good question. Um, I guess as much as it, as it is hard and sort of insecure and all those things, I think the lifestyle of it is still really lucky. I think we are really privileged to be, I don't know, able to just follow our train of thought for a day. And you know, <laughs> having no typical work day, I think, is, is awesome. You know, not having to mm. check in with anyone and just to, yeah, have that creative space to be able to do of what interests you is, is so lucky I think that's what keeps me in it but I think I'm pretty pragmatic about it as well I think you know if I get to the end of my fellowship and nothing else has come along in that in that um, area then I'll look for something else and I feel I don't know someone sort of said to me once that I think it was sort of when I'd finished my PhD and I was freaking out about getting jobs and I said well you've done some science you know you've you, you were a scientist you are a scientist so mm. if you do move on and do something else it's you know, you've had a really good shot at doing some science, and that's pretty cool. <laughs> so I sort of keep that in mind when, yeah, I'm unsure of where to go. And, yeah, I, I don't know what the alternatives would be right now for me, but I am I try to be very laid back about it, and I think I am relatively laid back about where, where things are going. And mm. it's so far worked for me, and I'm sure it'll catch up on me eventually, <laughs> not to be sort of always chasing <laughs> the next explodes. goal. <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, you have cool. to be laid back. And yeah, otherwise you would explode, right? I think so. I just, I don't want to, I, I try to always sort of reflect back and realize that, you know, I don't want to get into my whatever age and sort of look back and think, oh my gosh, I was just so stressed for all of that time. And actually it was super fun. And mm. look at all the places I get to go to and, you know, all the travel opportunities and being able to be in Sydney for a few weeks for a conference and things. It's, yeah, it's really lucky and I have had issues with stress and anxiety for sure, but I try to be, I think probably being with a partner who's super laid back about mm. everything in life really helps and um, try to remind myself how lucky I am to be doing it. And if it, if that runs out, then, you know, there's plenty of other things to do. Yeah. And I'll figure that out when and it comes the whole, to it. The dedication thing's a worry because, I mean, if you want to get ahead in science, then you just dedicate every waking moment mm. and every fiber of your being Devoted sure. to science, and that way you get to the top of the ladder. But then, I feel like you kind of stop being a person. Yeah. After a while. Yeah, I just I've never been like that. I don't think I could ever be that engrossed in one thing. I think I'm too distracted. <laughs> you know, like I I've got too many other things that roll through my brain. So I think that's like what really good. I don't know. Just like I like cooking and going into the bush just for fun. We're not just always looking for for the next science question and yeah. you know I, I think 
yeah, I have a short attention span, so that's probably works in my favour in terms of not getting too obsessed. And also, I do have a partner that will call me up on it if I am too, you know, mm. too. If he hasn't seen me for a day because I'm just, even if I'm physically present, of my mind somewhere else, then yeah, he just he tells me it's time to log <laughs> off for the day mentally. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. And, <laughs> Would that be your advice to people who have partners in science? Just to <laughs> get them to tell you to chill out now and again. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a good one. I feel like that's something scientists should tell other scientists. Yeah. More. It's true. You've done a good job today. Go home. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if when I have those really big bursts of productivity, when I'm just going hard trying to finish something, I just yeah, it comes to the end of it, and I'm just exhausted and grumpy and not a really good person to be around so I just I don't know how worth it is I mean obviously when you're really caught up in something it's good to ride the wave and go with it but yeah I just I, I just want to be a good person to be around as well as being a good scientist and it's not that the former is more important to me than being a really awesome scientist and I knew so many people during my PhD who worked round the clock and all weekends and a lot of their their relationships really suffered you know sometimes mm. really badly and and I tried to have the idea that if I worked nine to five ish and you know only on weekends when I really had to that I would probably still have a PhD at the end of it and I did mm. and I also still have my relationship <laughs> intact which is nice and yeah I, I think I didn't really see the difference in what came out of those two PhDs the one who worked around the clock versus mine mm. you know maybe some better publications and stuff but I mean I still have a job so mm. I don't know I think it probably says a lot about the relationship too that yeah can last these things I think I mean you know as important as I think natural history information and pure discovery for the sake of discovery is is it worth killing ourselves over <laughs> weevils? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I've got a friend who's um, doing her PhD on, on spiders and her her husband is a doctor, like a medical doctor, and she often says she'll come home after a really stressful day and say, ah, you know, my spiders wouldn't mate today. And he'll say, well, yep, someone, you know, was really ill and didn't make it today. And then she's like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess my issues aren't quite as bad. So, you know, it puts it into perspective a little bit that I think we take ourselves really seriously sometimes yeah. as scientists. And at the end of the day, you know, if our own personal deadlines don't happen, then no one is going to die, which is nice. That's a really good point. I had a close friend for a while that was a oncologist in a children's ward. Oh, goodness. And we'd be catching up with her and I'd be talking about you know, my struggles with you and Alice's. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. So Stephanie went today. <laughs> yeah. oh, <geez>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And she somehow managed to be sort of chipper and <laughs> yeah. positive and so well oh, well dear. rounded in her worldview. And I just, yeah. <laughs> just, and it's all relative, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I think I think that's why it's really good to have friends and people outside of your inner circle of academics because yeah, you know, sometimes I'll just be complaining about something to my mum and she's like, well, I can't really see why that's a big deal, but I can see your stress, so, you know, <laughs> let's make that better. But I think it's really nice to see 
to have other perspectives on life as well, for sure. And so going back to hoarder culture is, is not an option. Could happen. It could happen. I can grow a mean broccoli. <laughs> yeah. Always got to have a plan B. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yep. I was telling Kate yesterday that I even volunteered on a goldfish rearing farm once. For oh, really? For weeks when I was a teenager. So I've got options, for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, we've been talking for a while. I should probably wrap things up. Because there's any take-home messages you'd like to leave people with. I think we've covered them all. Keep your chin up, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I've terrified everyone. Oh, well, I mean, that's a thing that I think academics have to deal with now. They're under lots of pressure to recruit more students. It's true. What, what do you say to people that are interested in becoming scientists? Yeah. I think it's a great job. And I, I've, I love, you know, talking to people about whether or not they want to become a scientist and things. And I think it's great. I think everyone should give it a shot. I think it's just good to know that it's not going to get... It's not an easy path. But I don't know if any other career path is because I've never tried that. So, Mm. you know, it's competitive and all that. But so is... I'm sure if you wanted to become a graphic designer, I'm sure it's really hard to to make Mm. it in that world. So... Or an acrobat. Or an acrobat, which I have definitely not tried. <laughs> I should, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> At least you've got a plan B. A great one. Yeah, circus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's great. I think science is awesome. But, you know, there's other things. So give it a shot. Good. It's a good take-home <laughs> message. All right, let's wrap things up. So if people want to hear more about your research you have a killer blog going that oh, people yeah. can check out yeah i have a website which is um chrissypainting.com mm-hmm. and i am on twitter um at, at c painting nz all right good crazy for all your weaponry needs thank absolutely <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the podcast <laughs> you're welcome you've been listening to in situ science check out our website and in situ science.com or follow us on Twitter with the handle at InSituScience. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, and we'll see you next time.